Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. And Abundantly Well, Seven Medicines, The Wise Woman Way, the newest book in the Wise Woman Herbal Series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hello, Susan. How are you doing this evening? I am resting a little bit after a very vigorous day of moving everything that can't deal with temperatures below freezing into 
shelter. Oh, my, that is a busy day. Wow. It is. We, took, we, of course, took all the tropicals in, which really don't want to get below 45, although, you know, they'll do 44, so we had to take them in. But now it's, well, they've been revising it. First they said 28 tonight, then they said 30. Now they're saying maybe 34, so we'll see. Wow. Have you had your first frost yet? Oh, yeah. We definitely have had our first frost. Yesterday we actually had our first snow. They technically counted it. Um, Oh, my gosh. It actually snowed there? It did. It snowed. It was super blustery, so there was sideways blowing snow yesterday morning. I got to be out in that, which was, it was nice. I was, I was glad to be a part of that first. And, uh, yeah, it's been cold and very, very windy, wow. which adds to it. Windy, yeah. It, was, it has been beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous autumn days here and throughout the northeast. Of course, I left at the end of last week to fly down to West Virginia. Mm. And, yes, I, it was a wonderful herbal conference there. Just, oh, you know, it makes my heart so happy to see regional herbal get-togethers. I think it's so important for us as herbalists to meet and to talk to each other and to hear what's going on. It was a very, very interesting group. First of all, they got almost twice as many people as I thought they were going to get, so they're like, wow, okay. And about a third of them were really new to herbs and herbal medicine. In addition to... Yes, in addition to doing the keynote, I was part of the a panel called What I Learned from the Comfrey Conference. Oh, my goodness. How fabulous. Oh, oh gosh. And after we each of the panelists had spoken, one of the audience members said, Comfrey, Comfrey, I think it's an herb. What does it do? And it was so charming. And and it was just so, oh, my goodness. And and Barbara, um, who organized it, said the same thing. She said it was just thrilling to have people there who were such stark beginners. Mm. Oh, I love it. And Barbara was a part of it. I was wondering when I saw it on your schedule that you were going to West Virginia. Oh, I love Barbara. Yes, and um, wow, then there was about a third of the people who were like you and I and Barbara were involved in herbal medicine and were in various stages and states of involvement with it, each doing kind of our independent thing. And then about a third of the people there were herbalists whose mothers had been herbalists and whose grandmothers had been herbalists and so on and so back as far as they had been in West Virginia. Wow. Oh, that is so exciting. That can be so exciting. It is, it is exciting, and I blessed my stars that I didn't have to contend with that. Mm, I love that saying and that you used it. It goes so well with thinking of 
you know, legacy, like grandmother's teaching, like, <laughs> bless my star, love that thing. <laughs> right, you know, I don't have any grandmother to be upset with what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. And the truth of the matter is that we're talking like deep America, Dr. Christopher, the heart of heroic herbalism. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, when I did the keynote, and t- the keynote was supposed to be about the seven medicines, but of course I did talk about the seven medicines, but I talked about my three good ideas, right? Nourishing herbal infusions, the three traditions of healing, and the seven medicines. And only the p- the people that I identified as being kind of in the middle like you and I and Barbara were even aware of nourishing herbal infusions. The ones who didn't know about herbs didn't know about them and the ones who, who were in the heroic tradition um, it was a new concept to them. Wow. Wow. So that's, yeah, it was very exciting to be there and to to have people so happy that I was there and to be met at the airport by Barbara who said, the infusion of the day is, and handed me a quart. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. Which one did she make for you? Oh, let's see. What was the first one that she gave me? Red Clover. Oh, Red, yeah. Red, Red Clover was Friday, and Saturday was Oat Straw. And yeah. I think Sunday was Comfrey. Mm. Wow. She made sure that I had infusion to drink. What a blessing. How wonderfully well I was treated. What a grand time I had. I was very impressed by all of the talented, um, heartfelt herbalism going on. Mm. Wow, so beautiful. I just, like, knowing Barbara from the Comfrey Conference, I can imagine that an in-person conference that she's a part of what oh, must have been just fabulous and you were there so it had to be fabulous <laughs> uh, yes okay. indeed and we have a fabulous guest tonight speaking of a fabulous body language expert Lavinia Planka now already you're you're curious, right? I mean, who wouldn't be? You wonder, really, what would she see if she looked at me? She's going to help you improve your movement, behavior, relationships, and career. Whoa, ho, and she's been doing it for 40 years. So come back at 9 o'clock East Coast time or stay with us until then so you can hear what Lavinia Blanca has to say to us. I was talking to an EMT at the conference, and she was talking about those rare moments when the phone isn't ringing and the and the the alarm isn't going off and nothing is happening. And I told her about how we, you know. Absolutely, take that moment of gratitude when there are there are no problems. How are we doing tonight? Are there any problems? 
Uh, well, there are three hands that have been raised by pressing one. So we do have some callers that are looking to speak with you and actually make that four. So if you'd like to get um, lined up in the queue, you'll need to press one uh, so that we can see your hand. And so, yeah, four, four callers right now that would like to speak with you this evening. All right, then, shall we begin? All right, we'll start off with the first caller dialed in from the 704 area code. From the 704, we're live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi, I just had some questions. Um, I am, I recently have just decided to quit smoking um, marijuana in the past few days. I've been a user from a young age, from my teenage years, and I'm in my 30s now. Um, and I was just wondering if you had some advice on um, some different things that I could add to um, to my day to kind of get by, because right now it's really a struggle. I'm having problems with sleep. I have high anxiety um, and just kind of all over the place with my stress levels right now. Um, just wondering if you had some helpful advice. Well, first of all, let me ask you why it is that you've decided to stop such a beneficial habit. Um, I just don't feel like it's like it's time for me to have some clarity, and I've just been using so consistently for so long that mm-hmm. um, it just seems like too much, too much of anything. I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you, and especially with cannabis. But in general, when you have found that you get good results for relief from anxiety and better ability to focus from using cannabis, the better thing generally to do is to cut down rather than cut out. Right. So one of the things that I always talk about is power plants and how when we're working with a power plant, excuse me, (laughs) it's important that we recognize the power of the plant, but it's just as important that we recognize our own power. Yeah, of course. I think that's one of the reasons why I've decided to kind of and I'm a kind of an extremist. I go cold turkey. I've done this in the past before. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I so what just, what herbs have you used to relieve anxiety? Um, well, I have skull cap, um, mm-hmm. a passion flower, uh-huh. and um, I've been using kava. I'm actually on the islands in Hawaii right now, so it's a pretty popular um plant to be used out here and yeah and that's that's been helping a lot kava has been helping a lot i would think i would think that it would be really quite beneficial it's very friendly with cannabis and it works through some of the same pathways right so it would be i think more familiar to your body than skullcap Passiflora also, you know, is rampant where you are. Right. Mm-hmm. So those sound like good remedies. In general, it's 
pretty difficult to take too much of them. Right. When I'm working yeah, with think... people who are feeling very anxious, I have them put a bottle of whatever tincture they're finding helpful into their pocket and carry it around. So that as soon as they start thinking about being being anxious, they put a few drops of the tincture into their palm and suck it up. Mm. That's a great idea. You don't wait until you're totally freaking out and then hope that the herb will hit you over the head. Right, right. Right? That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you, you carry it with you as an ally. <clears throat> but also, I suspect that for you, one of the most straightforward paths here is to either start or expand your meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that's really where the focus is, isn't it? It is, definitely. I and mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm cutting it out, because I want to find my, my own clarity and my own peace, my own inner peace through my own mind, not through a, a substance. I do realize that a lot of these substances have, um, you know, a lot of positive benefits too, but, um, you know, when anything is abused, like I was using it kind of in an abusive way, you know, using it more than, more than three or four times a day. Um, so it, it just keeps I getting carried away. I don't, I don't measure I abuse by a number. Okay. I have found cannabis to be a really terrific ally to me in helping to deal with the pain from the surgery that I underwent. Mm-hmm. And I start the day by taking some cannabis tincture and some cannabis oil. And in the afternoon, I generally start, start smoking cannabis and continue doing that into the evening. If the pain increases, then I might take some more cannabis oil, but in general, throughout the evening, smoking it helps me to focus. It doesn't take away my focus any more than Passiflora or Kaffa does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the focus they're all that plant. I was They're all plants. They're right. all plants, and you're absolutely right. We want to be in right relationship. Whatever yeah. plants you're using, however you're use them, using them, I know that what you want is to be in right relationship with it, and I support that. Yes, for sure. So do you have a meditation guide? Do you have a meditation practice that you follow? Um, I'm still kind of developing it right now. I'm kind of still in like, still trying to figure out what, what really gets me there. I've been really going more into breath work, which I guess is just another level of meditation. Right. Um, and I've been running. So I have, have running, which has been a new, a really new meditation for me too, which has been incredibly helpful. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. 
So I think you're doing great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You are welcome. Thanks for asking. We appreciate you. Blessings. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right, and we have three callers with, or excuse me, uh, four callers with their hands raised. The next caller has dialed in from the 252 area code. From the 252, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Good evening. Good evening. Um, So I was surprised to hear your weather report because one of the things I was going to mention this evening if I had a chance to talk to you was I'm in eastern North Carolina, and they're telling us 34 degrees tonight, too. I mean, that's that's an unusual bite. We did not go into the, you know, we went from the upper 40s. We never hit the low 40s, never the low 30s, and all my tropicals are still out there. So I had a very similar day. She had a similar day. Very similar. All the basil is cut. I'm going to be making a lot of pesto tonight. A lot of pesto, oh boy. Um, wow. wow, I should have it here. I should have another 30 days of my tomatoes being out and, and, and the basil and you know, the squash are still, the winter squash are still out there on the vines. And I should really, I mean, it's just an unusual, early, strange way it happened this year. But I guess we roll with whatever nature throws us. Um, so I, I had a couple of things that I wanted to touch base on, but one of them, um, I guess I'm going to, you've got some other callers, so I'm going to talk about the one that's sort of the most new and different thing for me that I know you have thoughts on and experience with. My weather lamb is in the freezer, and I okay. went through that process in the last two weeks. Um, and we talked about this, I think, probably before he was even born. And um, how would I handle that and what would I do? And and I know you talked about how you handled that on your property. And um, what I ended up finding was um, out in the middle of, you know, down east nowhere, there is a small um, meat processing plant. And small, I mean, like, you know, it's okay to bring an animal and other people were bringing in two or three, but... The man that helped me unload him was the man that was going to slaughter him and the man that was going to butcher him and was, you know, just a, I, had a, I had a very good, well-handled experience with this. I, was, I, I felt really comfortable about where he went and how it was handled and um, got to see as he was hesitant to go into the, the stalls that they keep him in until they're ready to 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 process them, um, he was he was not he didn't walk well on a lead. He gave me fits. I just he, you know I know it, the 4-H kids start their animals on leads pretty young, but he did not want a harness, and he was giving me a hard time about that. And I said to him, you know he's not going to walk with you on a harness. And he brought this German Shepherd out of nowhere that was amazing. I mean I I'd never seen a dog herd before, and it was just uh, the animal was calmer, situation went smoother. It was just a, a really amazing. Um, but I had apprehension about certain parts of it, and one was from the time he left his mother and sister and he'd never been separated from his flock to the time he was actually slaughtered. And um, I don't know, I had in my head that I was going to drop him off at noon and he'd be dead by 5, and, and that is not what happened. And I contacted my um, my sheep mentor who does you know a larger herd. She's got, I don't know, 60 or so sheep. Um, and she said, yeah, she said that sometimes they'll, it'll be a day or two before they get to them. But I, she said that, you know, when they're in a setting where there, she said, where there are other animals. And I said, yes. She said, well, that will help calm him. He'll be in a stall and they'll, you know, give him water for the rest of the day. And the plan was to, to, to process him the next day. Um, 
but but it was a learning curve. I mean, everything from the the process of getting him there to choosing meat and butchering, and I was like, oh my god, you know, I've never thought about any of this stuff before. So, I guess the thing I'd want to hear your thoughts about are cuts of meat, and how do you do? You, do you eat the goats? Are, are you how, how do you do that? Yes, we eat our goats. Okay. So after we give death to a baby goat. I sit with the apprentices and we do a hands-on anatomy class and a lesson in skinning. Mm, that's a project. So I open the belly of the animal and I do my best to separate the omentum from the skin so that they can see that all of the stuff in the belly is surrounded by this big sack called the omentum. And we cut through that and we see the intestines, the small intestine and the large intestine. And we see peristalsis still moving through them. Wow. And I usually point out some part of the intestines that you can see, which is what I call the overnight portion, the part where they're not eating. And it's all flat. And, of course, where they are eating, there's stuff in the intestines, right? But where they didn't eat the intestine, it's flat. So I put it and show that this is an absolutely normal variation. Don't let anybody, like, tell you something's wrong. And we look at the difference between the blood flow and the blood vessel involvement to the small intestine and the large intestine. The small intestine has a zillion capillaries, each one outlined by lymphatic vessels. So the amount of information exchange, the lymphatic exchange and the blood flow exchange into the small intestine is super intense. And if it is in the large intestine, we see that now that huge amount of capillaries isn't going on. There's larger vessels still outlined with lymph, and we see the lymph outlining all of the intestines. And we move up the digestive tract until we get up to the stomach and the rumen, and we look at those, and I cut open the diaphragm. And we then see the liver, the pancreas, and the kidneys. All of these soft and important organs are up in the upper part of the body. And I point out how high in the body the kidneys are. Many people have the mistaken idea that they're low in their bodies, that they're somewhere down around their hips. And we look at the fat that's around the kidneys and we separate out the kidneys and that fat and we use that fat to make ointments where we want to quell um, inflammation or allergic reactions because of course there's a lot of well you know the stuff that the kidneys make right that is so anti-inflammatory so we want that fat and we look at the liver And I carefully cut the blood vessels going to the liver and take it out and show them that in most cases the liver is about as big as the head. And that's true for you too. 
I kept the liver. I, I Well, you know, they asked me, and I thought, what am I going to do with the kidneys? And I have a friend that's English, and I said, do you want them? And she said, no, thank you. I do not make kidney pie. And I said, okay, well, I don't know exactly what to do with the kidneys. Kidneys are delicious. Okay. We just fry them up. Okay. If it's from an older animal, I will soak them in milk first and usually throw that milk away to get rid of any uric acid taste. So the kidneys are, are prime. You know, for me, I'm raising the animal for the innards. The muscle, okay, you know, fine. I'm happy to have it. But it's the, the inner stuff that is really like, whoa. You know, when the same thing. What I do is I reach as far up as I can into the throat and pull the windpipe down and out so that I have the windpipe and then dangling from it the lungs, and I kind of pull them apart like a curtain and say, look, here's the heart inside. And you can see that one of the lungs is smaller than the other, and if I've been careful and not nicked anything anywhere, I can puff into the windpipe and inflate the lungs. And it's a really phenomenal thing to see the lungs go from uninflated to inflated. If this whole process has happened very quickly, within three to five minutes, the heart can start beating just from the oxygen blown into the lungs. Wow. It's a really important anatomy lesson. It sounds like it. I I had a very sterile experience by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, then I cut off pieces, small pieces, of the raw liver, which we all eat, and which everyone finds sweet as candy and amazingly good, and their body is saying, oh, give that to me. And I say the liver, the raw liver is a hunter's treat. The hunter usually eats the liver because it doesn't last. It's not very transportable if you dress up the animal. Okay. In the woods, often the hunter, it's the hunter's treat. And it is delicious. Right I as it is. Nutritious things on the planet is actually what was written. Was it, exactly. It's incredibly nutritious. And the heme- and, and so, you know, and if we're talking raw, well, it doesn't get any rawer than raw liver still warm from the animal. So when it comes to the rest of the carcass, then you're... What we do is pretty simple. After we've skinned it, and I take all of the innards out, we don't use the intestines, we don't use the lungs, Um, cut the head off, cut the hooves off. The hooves can be boiled and turned into rattles. And then the skeleton and muscles, which are left, are cut, first of all, into the limbs. So we have a front left leg and a front right leg. And we have a rear left leg and a rear right leg. This then leaves us with the hips, the rib cage and the spine. There's muscles that run up the length of the spine from the top to the bottom. 
one on either side of the spine, both interiorly and anteriorly. So in other words, there's the um, tenderloins on both sides of the spine, and that's what, that's what those are called. And we separate out the tenderloins and usually marinate those. Now we have basically the rib cage and the pelvis, the part that does not have any large meat on it. And that can be, sometimes we just put the whole thing right on a grill and grill that and pick off the meat and the bones then get made, of course, into bone broth. Or it gets cut into smaller, more usable pieces and frozen. And with the legs, do you have the way a lamb would have a leg of lamb, you have a leg of goat? Goat. A leg of goat, exactly. Okay. Um, right. So the only fussy thing we do is to, is to cut out the tenderloins. And the rest of it is pretty obvious and simple. There's a neck. If you skin out the neck, there's a neck that can be cooked up and made into soup. It can be used, yep. you know, to feed That's dogs or so on. It's There's some good meat, um, especially yeah. on a weather's neck. Yeah, I, I had, when I was talking to my breeder about, you know, she said, did you ever have she, lamb that wasn't from a grocery store? And I said, you know, maybe as a kid my grandmother had a butcher, but no, I've always, she said, here, she handed me a neck, and she said, go home and make a lamb stew. And she said, you'll be surprised at how much meat is on this. And so my first experience earlier this year with farm, farm-raised fresh meat from a lamb was with this neck. And I looked at my husband who said he didn't like lamb, and I said, you think you can eat this? He's like, oh, yes. I said, you think you can eat this for the rest of your life because you're going to. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that yours free range, don't they? They do. Okay. Do you do you sub, did you do you bring any grain into their diet at all? We give grain to the milkers. Okay. So the dairy goats are the ones that are actually milking have the supplemental grain. Exactly. Okay. Um so I was instructed to be using um a lot of alfalfa during that time for the calcium and I thought, you know, I'm just going to grow more comfrey and I used alfalfa this year but I just just tripled what the comfrey that I had around and you know, planted a lot of it around their paddock and I, I think that that's going to be you can run out, I mean, well first I know with the weather and what's happening they're suggesting that the alfalfa crops are really going to be scarce and the price is going to be through the roof next year um, with the heat that's happening in the southwest um, but it's also even without that you know, tractor supply runs out of alfalfa bales. And I thought, hmm, you know, that's, that's a problem for me. So I think I, I actually saw Eagle Song talking about after the Comfrey Conference how, how she was planning to between the cost of grain and what we were all, you know, learning and, and talking about with the Comfrey, that that is, that is as good a fodder for our, our dairy animals as, as we can get. Absolutely. 
So, okay, Absolutely. well, thanks for sharing the, the, the butchering part of things now because that was definitely, I was at a complete loss to even know what to ask for. And um, I, I think, you know, dumb things like, you know, when it comes to the chops, I, I, I wasn't sure even how, how, what width to tell them to cut them in. And, you know, I, this was number one, and so we were learning. Right, yeah, we, see, we, don't, we don't do any of that. We don't, like, make any fancy meats. Mm-hmm. We just, like... Cut the, cut the animal up into its, you know, basically quarters. We just basically quarter it, right? Yeah. And you have a full enough house that when you put a rack on, on a grill, you've got plenty of mouths to feed and, and you, you've got a lot of people in and out of there and can, can and make use are, of it all. These are small animals we're talking about. What did, what did your weather weigh out at? Weighed, uh, when he was, when he, his live weight was 127 pounds. He was six and a half months oh, old. Oh, he was big. Oh, my gosh. How old was yes. he? He was six and a half months. He just got <gasps> big. Okay. He's, he's twice as old as when we give death to them. Okay. All right. Well, and um, so. So, so I, I understand. That's, that's a lot more meat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was what I was told to expect was like forty-five to fifty pounds. So you want them to be at least ninety pounds, and then, uh, you know, it, it's it's actually very hard to get an appointment here to have the animal processed because there are just not enough places that are. You know, a lot of people I think have become you know small farmers, and and it's I first place I called told me they weren't going to get to me until next March. I said, "You're kidding me." I mean, that's not even viable. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Um, you know, well, you know, it made me. It really, it drove home the the weathering part of it because if God forbid I couldn't get one to be slaughtered or you know wasn't in a position to try it on my own, um, you know, I would have a situation. I'd have a brother who was trying to mate his sister and his mother. So I I really walked away from that saying that I will weather everything. I just have no reason for a ram, and that's just smart for me to do. It really is. I agree with you absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, just a quick one. I know there are other people waiting. I heard Sarah Ellen and you all talking a few months ago about banding, and I was told that with the lambs, between 7 and 14 days, and I actually was at three weeks, and when my breeder was showing me how to do it, she said, I've waited too long on this guy, so I'm, you know, I'm going to show you while you're here. He was four weeks, and she gave him a little bit of a shot of some, something to numb him and she went ahead and did it at four weeks but um i remember she had somebody telling her three months and that's that was that's contrary to everything i've heard i've heard seven to 14 days and that's you know when you want to do it in a humane way and it was early 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 exactly if you're going to alter anything about your animals do it as soon as you can yeah, and they were they you know I I didn't I have a rat tail sheep so I didn't dock tails but they dock the tails too and that's how they do it with a bander. Yep. So, yeah, um, yep. but it it worked and, and you know we didn't we we got both testicles that was the most important thing. That is the most important thing. <laughs> if the listeners will forgive us. <laughs> well, thank you for the conversation about this. I really I I just can't tell you how much I value your experience and and what you know about these processes. So thank you for talking to me about it. You are so welcome. Cream blessings. Good night. Well, bye. All right, and there are three callers that have their hands raised by pressing one. The next caller has dialed in from the 310 area code. From the 310, you are with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Hi. Thank you so much yes, for taking the call. Just... Yes, yes. Okay, wonderful. 
Go ahead. Um, all right. So yesterday morning, uh, I went to, I, I do some indoor rock climbing. I just got, I just started that a couple of months ago. Um, and so I went to the rock climbing gym and I did um, a pretty intense uh, workout climbing. Um, and when I was driving home, uh, this is a little, it, it, it sounds ridiculous um, because I've never heard of this happening before, but it, but it happened, <laughs> uh, which was, I was, I came to a stop sign and uh, I had to sneeze and I, and I did. And I, sometimes my sneezes can be quite uh, profound. <laughs> and um, when I sneezed, uh, I, I don't even know how, it, how to describe it entirely other than a lightning bolt of, of pain ripped through my lower spine. Um, and I could barely, I could barely drive home. I managed to get home um, somehow. And my, my partner had to help me um, up the 60 stairs because we live in a very hilly neighborhood and we have many stairs to get to our, our place. Um, so <clears throat> uh, that was yesterday morning. And uh, since then, I haven't been able to, uh, to stand or to walk um, or really sit up. <clears throat> so the pain is at its, the pain comes on when I'm upright and there's any kind of, I guess it would be compression um, on my lower spine. Um, it's it just the most uh, incredible pain ever. Um, I have been able to um, sort of push myself upright, but the only way that I could even be standing, because I, you know, really just seek, go use the, the bathroom, is if I'm leaning forward and I'm putting a lot of pressure on my hands, like I'm holding onto something, pushing myself up. But to actually require my back to be supporting me, it just cannot, it just can't really do that right now. Um, and so the things that I've been doing, uh, I've been alternating uh, ice and heat, um, as well as uh, comfrey compresses. Um, and I've, I've been doing that, you know, every, uh, every hour or hour and a half, I, I do each of those things. Um, I've been resting. Um, let's see, I have actually some notes here. Um, I've been hiking, uh, taking hypericum tincture, um, one dropper full, uh, approximately every 15 to 20 minutes, because um, I know that that can support um, the nerves and help with nerve pain. And, and you've been um, doing that. And you've been doing that for how long now? Uh, for well, when I'm not sleeping, I didn't wake myself up to do it, but when I'm awake, um, uh -huh. you know, ever since yesterday, so for over 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And when you take the hypericum, are you free of pain? I'm, I'm not free of pain. No, I've been in quite a bit of pain, even even resting, even in even lying lying flat. Um, so I'm not exactly sure. Um, <clears throat> why are you continuing to take it every 15 minutes if it's not effective? Um, well, I, I wasn't sure that it wasn't. Um, the pain has gotten it wasn't. better. Well, you, uh, sorry, you asked if I was without pain, and I have not been without pain um, because I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain, but it, it has gotten better. Less? I'm sorry. Does, 
Does it affect your pain in any way at all? When you um, take the only reason I, for taking Hypericum every 15 minutes is because it gets rid of pain. So it's every 15 minutes or when there's pain. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So okay. my interpretation of what you're saying is that you are just doing something. And I'm not sure... It, it's doing anything for you. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure how immediate the effects would be. I didn't know if it would take a day or two. So that's helpful uh, to know that if it would be more immediate. Every 15 minutes, then it should have right. an immediate effect, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right? That's how you know. You've chosen to take it, not once or twice a day, but every 15 minutes. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. if you want to take it once or twice a day, I'm not arguing against that. Right. But every 15 minutes doesn't make any sense to me, given what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I heard um, at some point, uh, I think you had a caller with very severe sciatica, um, and, and, and you, you don't, said that... But you don't have very severe sciatica. Right, right, right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I said every I, 15 I, minutes or when there's pain. Exactly. Right. right. Meaning, yeah. let me be explicit, that when you use it, the pain will go away. Mm-hmm. And if... You're using it over and over and over and over and over and over again, and the pain is not actually going away, then stop. Okay. That's, so, that, that's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Um, let's think about what could be going on here. When we sneeze, muscles contract. So, certainly we know there's a muscle contraction there, and yet um, Hypericum is not doing much of anything about it. Um, I'm not sure about the alternation of hot and cold. Is that because you can't quite figure out which one to use? Um, that's just because that is what I've been, I've heard can be helpful when you have an immediate um, injury of some sort. For an an injury that's swollen, it's always cold. uh Uh-huh. And not hot. Okay. And, um, rice, rest, ice, compression, elevate. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. So hot and cold, again, is, to my mind, sending a very mixed message. Mm-hmm. Right. Warmth is relaxing. So if you're using warmth, then you're sending a message to 
the muscles to relax and be at ease and everything's okay and don't worry. And if you're using cold, then you're saying, um, we're going to quell this inflammation. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure, I guess because you're not quite sure, um, what really is happening. Is the pain burning? That's usually an indication of inflammation. Um, I would say yes. At, re- at resting, it's like a burning pain. Uh-huh. Like a burning, a burning pain. Sensation. So yeah. when there's burning, we don't want to apply heat. Okay. Because we're allopathic. So we apply the opposite. If there's a burning, we apply cold. So the comfrey compress can go in the freezer. Doesn't have to be frozen solid, but it can be. Because of course, once it hits your skin, it gets unfrozen pretty quick. Mm-hmm. We were talking at the comfrey conference panel about how delightful it was at the Comfrey Conference, of how many different ways people had of making Comfrey compresses and Comfrey ointments and all of the different ways that they were doing it. And one of them thanked me for telling her about making a jelly roll with the spent Comfrey leaves from the infusion rolled up in an old kitchen towel like a jelly roll and stuck in the freezer. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, again, you're on a good track. Keep paying attention to your body. So if we're saying, oh, it feels hot, let's use cold, and you use cold a couple of times, and your body says, I don't like that, then use hot. Insofar as you can, use this as an opportunity to really pay attention to your body rather than to try to manipulate your body with your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. So first of all, your body wants you down, right? Yeah. Your body says, okay, that's it. You're laying down now. You're not getting up. <laughs> yes, and in so far as you feel frustrated by that and angry at your body about that, then you're the two of you aren't working together. Because this is actually what's being asked of you right now. That you stop, you slow down, you pay attention, and that in doing so, you benefit directly because serenity medicine is always a benefit and oftentimes indirectly because you have a different story about your problem or your problem actually changes in some significant way. Can you say that again, that last part, Susan? 
I'm not about sure the story changing. That. Just that, just the last part, yeah, about something changing in a significant way. I, I, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Again, if you wouldn't mind. That, um, that there's the the direct benefit of serenity medicine is you're more serene. Mm-hmm. There's always that benefit of it, and there is often an indirect benefit that there is physical change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In other words, okay. the serenity medicine doesn't have a goal, which is physical change. The serenity medicine has a vision that everything is exactly the way it should be. Right. And that then leads to physical changes that we might term desirable. In other words, your better ability to stand up and walk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not like we're saying if you meditate, there will be a miraculous healing. Right. If you accept this, then it will go away. You know, it, it's almost like the catch-22, you know. You have to, like, kind of turn your back to what you want in order to get it. But if you're turning your back to get it, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm I, hearing you, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, and I've been doing the opposite. I've been very focused on, you know, the end goal and getting myself up and getting myself feeling better. And it just, this thing just barely happened. Um, and I, and I wasn't just meeting my body where it was at and just accepting and opening to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. How wonderful that you have a partner. And that, yeah, that, that there's someone there to help you. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, truly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Susan. This was really uh, just the thing that I needed to hear. Um, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling and sharing. Green blessings. Good night. Okay, green blessings. Good night. All right, and there are four callers that have pressed one to raise their hand. Next caller's dialed in from the 212 area code. From the 212, you are live with Susan. Susan, hi. It's Lauren from New York City. Hey, Lauren. How are you, my dear? You're tired from those tropical plants, yes? No, the tropical ones are already in from all the non-tropical the ones that we called in all the rest of them. That's a Ooh. lot of plants. <laughs> that's a lot of plants. Oh, I said, oh, my goodness, there's no room in your house anymore. I said, that's right, all the plants that can't stand to be frozen have to live in the house. Oh, it must be like in a grotto. Oh, lovely. <laughs> it is. It is. And what a... Gorgeous autumn we're having, eh? Oh, my gosh. I'm, unlike your plants, I'm thriving in this weather. <laughs> right. 
and I know you are too. I love the cold weather. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Sweet Alyssum has decided to be a volunteer in my garden, and Sweet Alyssum, because it's in the mustard family, of course, adores this weather, and so the garden is just draped in this sweet-scented, beautiful white flower. Oh, my gosh. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, I can just picture it. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I visualize trees a lot from here. <laughs> I miss <laughs> Oh boy, and and that that talk with the lady with her lamb reminded me of apprenticing and giving death to the baby goat, and how um, how sacred and how ancient and how uh, that no fear in the animal physiologically and just being with that experience was so important and so. Difficult, meaningful, wonderful. And something that stayed with you all this time. Oh, so much of it has stayed with me. I, I, I think of the, now I'm in a lot of transition. I think a lot about the apprenticeship. I have questions to ask you about it, but not tonight, not here. <laughs> okay, tonight's question is? Tonight's question is, oh, gosh. I'm trying to put it off because I know I shouldn't be asking it. <laughs> oh, I'm asking it for somebody, and you have every right to hang up on me and say, go elsewhere. Um, I, I have a friend who's going to have a DNC, and I, I bought her down there, and I, I, I tried to interfere with it a little bit and tried to ask her, and I tried to have her call you so she could go on her own journey, but she's made a decision and doesn't want to talk about it, and I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I should not be interfering with her, but she asked me to ask you something because she said she was scared of calling. Um, I think that, I, no, it doesn't matter what I think about why. It's, this is her, and, and I think it's important. I remember you saying something wonderful one night, and it was a long time ago, and I liked it so much I jotted it down. You said, herbal medicine is just a front, just a way to encourage people to take a step nearer to their power in their life. And that's not what I'm, what, what I'm having her do right now, because I'm asking the question. A DNC, any recommendations that you could give me that I could pass on that would make it a healthier experience pre and post? Drink nourishing herbal infusions every day of your life. Yes, of course. Of course. Um, DNC is dilation in uterage. Yes. So what means is there's something in the uterus that is not wanted for some reason or another. Mm. And in general, this is done under local anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And I would make sure that that is the case. That mm -hmm. in most instances, um, although it can be a little tricky, um, insisting on local rather than general mm -hmm. anesthesia, mm -hmm. um, certainly gives better health results in all situations of um, electrosurgery where you don't actually need to be completely under. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, usually, after... 
after surgery, you're presented with apple juice and refined carbohydrates. Bring, mm. your, own, bring your own snacks. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend? What, what do you want? Um, uh, what, you know, whatever you, whatever you would want to eat when you're uh, going to have just gone through something traumatic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, which is why they give you, you know, basically readily available sugar. Right, right, right. Apple juice and some kind of cookie is mm-hmm. what you usually get. Right. So you don't necessarily have to, like, bring apple juice and a cookie if you don't want to necessarily flood your system with sugar, but you need to get something, you know, kind of like, hmm, what would you eat after a workout? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Probably not apple juice and a cookie. No, probably not. Um, the anesthetic, um, that that can be the most problematic, generally, mm-hmm. with surgery. And being knocked out would... You have to get clear with your surgeon. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to make sure that your surgeon will back you up on it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there are less problems, complications, lingering symptoms if you've got a local? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, don't, I don't know much about it because I haven't been under the knife uh, except mm. once. Not a knife. Not a knife. There's no knife no. involved. No, no, I mean, I haven't had occasion to have anesthetic except but once in my life. So I don't actually know much about it. Um, in fact, in fact, this procedure is done without any anesthesia at all. Mm-hmm. In many instances, in many places in the world. Yeah, she she had the cone biopsy, and it sounds that very very painful. So she didn't want to have it done in the office, mm-hmm. which was offered. Yeah. Um, so a DNC means it. Something is inserted into the uterus and sucks mm-hmm. you up. Right, right. I, I had biopsy after biopsy of my uterine lining. Mm-hmm. There were cancer cells there, and I never even had local anesthesia. Mm-hmm. I did have a nurse hold my hand. Yeah. Right, right. But... I find that I'm able to abide pain that I know will stop. Mm. It's the pain that doesn't stop. I start going, ooh, ooh, ow, ow, no, 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 wait, 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 ouch, 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 ouch. Yes, sometimes the, the battle is to remind yourself that whatever you happen to be experiencing will end, including right. mood distress, which basically yes. makes you feel like it's forever, right? Right. <laughs> oh, geez. I, I, I don't know enough about this because basically I just armed myself with information to try to talk her out of it. So, um, well, I'm not sure why you would want to talk her out of it because I'm not sure why she's doing it. There was a thickening of the uterine lining, and there was nothing in the sonogram or the biopsy that indicated a problem. And the doctor recommended the DNC, and um, so she's doing it. How old is she? 
55. So basically what the doctor is recommending is that she have a menstrual period. Mm. Does that make it easier for you? Um, I'm not I, sure. do, I agree with you that it's certainly not needed. Yeah. But I disagree with you that it's awful. Okay. She she has declared herself to be a person who is timid and does not like to take risks. Mm. This is an appropriate action for a person who is timid and does not like to take risks. This does not describe either you or I, Lauren. Oh, I'm honored you stick me in your category. I'll try to live up to it. <laughs> I'm not timid. No. Not. Not, not, not. You stood in the hallway and said, girl, to me. That's not a timid <laughs> thing to do. That was after a period of prolonged timidry that that was uh, almost guaranteed to push you completely away from helping anything for me at all. I thought, no, I worked too hard. Right. (laughs) That's what I told the surgeons. I said, look, I take risks. Yeah, yeah. If you have a choice between doing something conservative and risky, do the risky thing. That's what I want. So this will that be, doesn't mean the conservative thing is wrong. Yeah, no, I I hear you, I hear you. Um, I've I've shut up about it after the initial. What do I do? What do I yeah. do? And we researched it, if, and she if, said, if "This is what I'm going to do." her day and night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, we wouldn't want to condemn her to that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, once I've made a decision to do or not do something, I'm done, you know. Mm-hmm. The whole thing in my head just is gone. Stip, turned off. Can I ask you a really stupid not question? Not everybody is like that, and she doesn't sound like she is, right? No, 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 not not for this. That she would endlessly go around and around and around about, oh, the doctor said I should, but I didn't. Oh, my gosh, did it. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. really okay. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. you're doing the wise thing, which is to say, hey, nourishing normal infusions. Mm, mm, mm. I, 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 I wish, I wish I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Always it's, a good idea. Of course, of course. You know, and if all else fails, dandelion, hooray dandelion, right? Oh, dandelion in any form. Dandelion right? is good for your liver, and any of the drugs or anesthesias they give her are going to be, you know, taxing her liver. So dandelion mm-hmm. is always helpful, and people feel so friendly toward dandelion. Yeah, yeah. They usually don't have any problem with being asked to take dandelion or given dandelion or encouraged to take dandelion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, when, and writing when, a new correspondence course called Sharing People's Medicines. Oh, what is that? I'm hoping to be done by the end of the month. Oh, my God. I have 22 out of the 26 projects, and I'm starting.
starting to edit them, but I have to stop because I have a radio show on Thursday and I have to get ready for that. Mm. Anyhow, <laughs> but, you know, this this is, is definitely one of the things that's so important that we share. Yeah. Um, yes. And sharing dandelion and sharing nourishing herbal infusions. Isn't that what, what the apprentices used to tell each other? Oh, if Susan's not going to be here for Tuesday night consultations, we tell them either dandelion or nettle infusion, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. Well, it was a good answer then, and it's a good answer now. <laughs> I can hurt uh, anybody, and more than half the time, you'll probably help them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I guess I feel I feel bad because I'm so damn far away that I can't really go with or help at this point. Ah, uh, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. But, but space-time does not constrain you. No. No, and we're good at bridging that as friends. So You are. Yeah. So be with her. Yeah. 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 Be with her. When I went to have my hernia repaired, mm. I told everybody about it, and I told them when it was. I woke up that morning, Lauren, and I was just surrounded with love and bliss. Mm. They came in with happy pill, and I looked at it, and I said, Fa-pa. I don't need the happy pills. Take your happy pill and give it to somebody else. Oh, goodness, goodness, goodness. Now, I remember oh. this was like 12 years ago when you really? were supporting me. If I had to have surgery, we didn't know if we could stop the bleeding, and I thought I might need it. And one right. of the prep for surgeries was exactly that, surround yourself with support. Yes. That is As a matter of fact, there was a young man who they'd given two happy pills to, and he was still not happy. <laughs> and they made him sit next to me, and he got happy. I didn't even say anything to him. I was just so pleased out. It was just marvelous. You know, all the love was pouring into me. Oh, my gosh. And and pouring all through you and out through you and around him. How wonderful. Yes. So, of course, you can be there for her. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. Thank you. Oh. And I'm going to say goodbye so I can goodbye, answer a few goodbye, more questions before I talk to Thank Lavinia. You so much for your time. It's so nice to hear your voice. I love you, love you, love you, Lauren. Oh, I love you so much, Back. Have a blessed, blessed, mwah, green blessings. Yay, Bye-bye. autumn. <laughs> oh, yeah. Green blessings. Yes. Good night. Good night. All right. And uh, we have one caller that is in the queue with their hand up. And you are dialed in from the 805 area code. From the 805, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi, first-time listener and caller. I actually was introduced by my friend's mother, who's been a longtime follower of yours. But I've been um, having some symptoms of early perimenopause and um, just wanted to reach out for some. And I started taking the... Nourishing herbal infusions, and then um, want to share a story with you. Sure. 
long time ago, decades ago, I was on a panel about menopause. It was on television. And there was an older white male doctor who said, menopause is the end of a woman's life. Once she hits menopause, everything shrivels up, her bones break, her heart gives out, and she's a worthless husk. The only reasonable thing to do for women at menopause and thereafter is to give them hormones to keep them preserved. Needless to say, I did not share his view. In fact, I shared my views, which are that menopause is very healthy for women. We don't stop making hormones. We never stop making hormones. Estradiol really doesn't count at all. I noticed, this was fairly long shows, over an hour, and then he grew silent and withdrew. And eventually the show was over. The cameras were off. The lights were off. The sound was off. And he turned to me and he said, any woman who listens to your nonsense will have her life destroyed. I've been sitting here trying to figure out a way to make it clear that menopause is a threat to all women and should be feared and treated with every possible hormone you can throw at it. So the word I've made up, and I intend to use it in an article and get it to become standard medical terminology, is perimenopause. He said, you can make women think that menopause is powerful, but once they hear the word perimenopause, all their power will be stripped from them, and they'll come begging for hormones. So I want you to stop using that word, please. Okay. How old are you? 41. There's nothing early about what's happening to you. It's not perry and it's not early. I didn't we, think start so making, we start making estradiol, the dangerous hormone, at puberty. It's made approximately 24 to 36 hours once a month, every menstrual month until menopause. For most women, the amount of estradiol that they make gradually builds from puberty up until about their mid-20s. And that is the time when they're at their most fertile from the mid-20s until generally about the mid-30s, for most women, the amount of estradiol that they're making on a monthly basis at one or one and a half days a month remains pretty constant. From the age of 35 on, for all women, the amount of estradiol that is made becomes less and less and less. For some women, that is a long, slow die-off, and they're not even noticing that they're making less until they hit their 50s. For other women, that's a pretty steep drop-off, and they start to notice symptoms by their early 40s. Any time between 40 and 50 is an appropriate time to be entering menopause. Okay. So it's not early, and it's not peri. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm reiterating what I've been told, which is sad. But the reason why I wanted to call in was to ask, um, I've been getting these debilitating headaches that I've never had before. 
where it feels like an ice pick is going through, like, my head. It's just, it, like, lays me out where I can't do anything. Your head from the top, the eyes, the ears, the base. Like the very top and sometimes from the back. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have my book, New Menopausal Here's the Wise Woman Way? I have it right next to me now. Yes. All right. Have you read the part about Kundalini? Yes. I'm actually a yoga teacher, so yes, I have. All right. So what we're dealing with here is Kundalini pushing through the narrowest channel. Right? The crown chakra Mm -hmm. is the smallest of all the channels. It vibrates at the fastest frequency and has the smallest aperture. So you know how to find a way to open up to that. Yes. And it may be that you want to do some preparatory work before you completely open up to that. Moving energy through the crown chakra can sometimes leave you disoriented. Right. Right? Yes. I think that's why I haven't done it before. Right. It's better not to do it all alone. Somebody you can call, somebody who will call you, somebody nearby, somebody in the space where you are. Okay. Just to be sure that you have backup. Okay. Yeah, because they just start happening out of nowhere. It seems like it's weekly now. Where mm-hmm. these will put me out. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. It's it's going to be an in journey of possibility for the next 10 years. Okay. You see, this is why I think menopause is power. And why he thought it was a disaster. Because women could gain power? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And because the hormones that they basically want women to take are hormones that keep women in their kind of receptive, fertile way. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas once you go through the gates of menopause, you step into your power and your sexuality in a self-owned way. I like that. Okay. It's not easy, but it's not supposed to be 
easy. And you've chosen to prepare yourself through your training as a yoga teacher to be available to change. You know I say... It's not easy. (laughs) It's never easy. You know I say that menopause is not change because change, after all, really is the easiest. Transformation (laughs) is harder. But but what menopause requires of us is metamorphosis. Like a butterfly, metamorphosis. I like that. Like a butterfly and like the caterpillar melting down into green slime. (laughs) There were definitely green slime days during my menopause. I'm like, oh, for goodness sakes. And then I heard an entomologist talk. And it's like, oh, I wish I'd never heard this. And she said, you know, and the caterpillar melts down into green slime or black goo or whatever it is for this particular species, and then it forms into a butterfly, she said. And then most of the time it says it's not good enough, and it melts back down again. It makes itself into a butterfly again. I'm like, no. (laughs) Tell me it isn't so. And she says sometimes they go through like even three iterations before they're satisfied with what they've got. I'm like, oh. (laughs) Uh, but you have um, you know a a good solid foundation and you have the greatest jewel that anyone can have which is a good attitude and Mm -hmm. then just stay away from those people who are you know trying to tell you that menopause is anything other than Moving through every gate with your kundalini. Inanna. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. All right. And there are two callers that have raised their hand. Uh, we've got about seven minutes for a guest okay. to schedule to. All right. The next caller is dialed in from the 647 area code. From the 647, you're live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, very glad to have been able to speak with you this evening. I know I'm the last caller. So I woke up this morning with a pain at, at the area of my lower left scalp. And when I put my hand there, I felt a raised area, and it was cool, very tender. My husband took a picture of it, and it um, looked kind of ominous to me. I went to the walk-in clinic, and they did remove a dog tick. I've heard you make the distinction between deer ticks and dog ticks, I believe. And this one was very embedded and um, not that easy to remove, but it was removed. Um, I did uh, want to take two doxycycline tablets uh, immediately, like I went and said well, that script. Well, do not pass Lyme disease. They, which ones do? Deer ticks. So the tiny ones, the tiny ones that don't embed, into, embed in your skin? Correct. Okay, because I do have that bullseye-looking uh, thing. Well, I'm not so sure you have a bullseye. I think that you might have an inflammation from the minor surgery. 
Well, it was already looking like that before um, before it was removed. Has it gotten bigger? No, I don't think so. No. Generally, if there's a bullseye that I've seen, it grows. I see. Okay. okay. There will often be a red inflamed ring. And what I want to see is I want to see that red inflamed ring tighten up and get redder and not spread out and get more diffuse. I see. Okay. That would be a more ominous sign, eh? Yes. If it's spreading out and getting more diffuse, it's spreading out. Right. Right, right, right. Okay. I'm, I'm concerned Rose, because... if it tightens up and gets redder, okay, now we've got good capillary action. We've got lymphatic stuff coming in here. We're on the healing path. Right. I was concerned because it, it remains very, very tender, and I feel very headachy and like a, a strange sensation in my eyes, as if my eyes are puffy. I don't... They're not puffy when I look in the mirror, but I feel a, an odd... So I'm not saying that dog ticks can't pass other diseases. Dog okay. ticks can pass an um, allergy to meat protein. Yes, I've heard that. Yes, yes. So have you looked up the symptoms of the things that dog ticks can pass? All I said was they can't pass Lyme disease. Right, right. No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, and what part of the country are you in? I'm in Ontario, Canada. <laughs> the, and, of course, things can change. But the ticks that yeah. I've heard of that are passing the problematic things are more Rocky Mountains and West. Right, right. Okay. Well, I, I made notes that... What, the, when I heard you speak about somebody else who was talking about Lyme disease and her, well, I should say a tick bite, and I, um, I, I do, I was wondering... So have you been drinking a stragglers? No, because it's just happened this morning, so I, okay. I made a note well, this is, tomorrow. Well, it's certainly not too late, but I, that's certainly something I do anytime I'm bitten by a tick. Yes, and a uh, stragglers infusion, and I believe you said one cup a day? You know, it's not the kind of thing that I need to be worried about. Am I getting okay. too okay. much of? So I keep okay. a stragglers infusion around, and if I open the refrigerator and I say, hey, I want some stragglers infusion, you bet. That's what I do. Right. Okay. okay. Right. And, and if I go through that court and I think I want another one, I'll make, it, I'll make myself another one. Right. Often, you know, by the time I've drunk one quart, it's pretty clear that whatever's happened with the, the tick bite is calming down and it's okay. Gotcha. Does it make sense to take any echinacea tincture? Um, it, it's certainly not harmful. Right. But since it's a bacteria, well, well, I didn't know when I took it that, it, that Lyme disease isn't passed by the dog tick, so... I was thinking since it's a bacteria, maybe it would make sense to, to take some echinacea regularly, but I hear you saying that that's, yeah, that's not my concern. Lyme disease is not my concern with this kind of a tick. Right. So, and what about some St. John, John's wort? Would that make sense? Um, again, probably not because of the 
unlikelihood of Lyme. Okay. okay. Right? If Once you start to investigate and see, you know, what kind of um, problems your dog t- could be carrying, and you should be able to find right. that out easily, then right. you can choose herbs that would be appropriate. Right, 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 right. Okay. Okay. And you Am I right? seem to have a very good sense of that, so I think you'll do great with it. Okay. I know you have um, a, a speaker, so thank you so much for your help, Susan. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Okay. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Is Lavinia here? Yeah, she is in the queue. Lavinia Planca is a body language expert who's helped people improve their movement, behavior, relationships, and careers for over 40 years. Her unique expertise connects the dots among posture, movement, emotions, and the mind. Lavinia's training and professional career have included theater, dance, yoga, and the martial arts. She has taught the Feldenkrais Smith for 30 years and is also an assistant trainer. Lavinia is a level CL4 teacher of the ALBA method and an emotional body instructor. She was an artist in residence for the Guggenheim Museum and a movement consultant for theater and television companies around the world, from the Irish National Folk Theater to Nickelodeon. A faculty member of the SHIFT Network, Lavinia's popular workshops explore the intersection between movement, emotion, and the mind. She's currently the director of Asheville Movement Center in Asheville, North Carolina. Lavinia's writing includes several books and audio programs. Welcome to the show, Lavinia. Oh, thank you, Susan. I've never heard an oral interpretation of my biography before. That was great. (laughs) 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 Oh, my goodness. Um, Just... Hardly even know where to start because what an intriguing um, thing that you offer us that you are working with body language. It's something that we all kind of have a sense of, but really, who talks about it very much? Unless we're talking about like giving people the finger. Which is really not body language, right? That's sign language. That's sign language, right. Yeah. And and it's interesting to talk about body language on the radio. Yes. I'm thinking, ah, I can't even see her. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So give us a little primer here. Get us set on the right track about body language so so that we can be with you and understand you. Well, I, there's there's so much to say. I don't even, you know, just like you said, you don't even know where to begin. Uh, you know, a lot of times people think of body language as, you remember those books in the 1970s? That's, you know, that's the thing. You said so many things that I've done. Uh, we've lived a long time. <laughs> but, 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 you know, in the 70s, we would get these things about if your legs were crossed a certain way or if your arms were crossed a certain way, that that meant you were communicating something. And, you know, while there's a certain 
level of uh, truth to some of that. What I'm much more interested in is the way we communicate through our posture, through our breath, through our unconscious facial expressions. Not, you know, our gestures are certainly part of it. But a lot of, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is when we gesture, we're actually gesturing for ourselves, not for others. We're giving information to our own nervous systems when we gesture. And that is kind of like your own neural feedback device. But body language is how we're communicating our state, you know, whether you're, you're feeling anxious or happy or stressed. Uh, you know, that, that is so fascinating to me because we don't necessarily have control over it. It takes a lot. I mean, it would, you know, an actor has to train for years in order to communicate a certain state. And when we're in our life situations, we're, we don't have that kind of control. It just kind of happens. You know, the vagus nerve sends, in, sends a little bit of information out, and then all of those hormones go cascading through your brain, and there you are trying to smile when you're really upset at something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So how did you get involved in body language? And Feldenkrais certainly is a body language, but it's so interior. It's not an expression to others at all. Usually it's an expression to ourselves. And I also wanted to say that you really struck a chord with me because at my voice lesson, the teacher will have me like take my finger and point and like vibrate my finger before I sing. And then if I can do that, then then I'm asked to do it without my finger. And it's like so hard. <laughs> Oh well, that's a great teaching strategy, though, because she's she's asking you to to use your body, and it's, I'm, I'm vibrating my finger now as we speak, just so that I can get the vibe. <laughs> which you're talking about. But 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 when when we are able to get energy out through our fingers, that's a whole other conversation. I want to go back to what you said about the Feldenkrais method, because you know the interesting thing, um, you know, as you as you read my my first life, because, you know, again, I've had many lives, but my first life was in the theater. And, in the, in, and specifically, I performed as a mime artist, which meant that I, you know, expressed people's stories and emotions without words. And that was where my first interest came. It was like, well, you know, I can certainly portray someone sad, someone happy, someone sexy, someone, you know, large, whatever, but I didn't understand why those particular postures or attitudes uh, communicated that. It was like I could do it, but what was really happening, right? What was really happening interiorly? And it was when I discovered the writings of Moshe Feldenkrais and he talked about how we carry habitual patterns in our body, in our breath, in our posture, in our facial expressions, in our tensions, in our... Uh, kind of unconscious attitudes that communicate to other people that we are insecure or angry or stressed, I became really, really interested in, oh, well, there must be a science behind it. And hence my many, many years of research into 
all the different aspects of body language that have led me to where I am today. But definitely, Feldenkrais had a deep understanding of how we communicate unconsciously just through our posture and our attitudes. So that that sort of, you know, is, is a small trajectory, but from Feldenkrais, I, I started to look at all of the different people that study or research emotional patterns. And, you know, there's more and more of that research being uh, brought out today with a lot of different people, everybody from this guy, Paul Ekman, who just specialized in the face, to this woman, Laura Bond, who wrote The Emotional Body, which is one thing that I'm an instructor in, who, who kind of narrowed, helped narrow down some of the patterns that we have into basic patterns and then how you can actually master that through a somatic training. So I've been kind of putting all of this together into my own work. Have I seen yeah. you? Glad. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just marveling at the wonderful um, strands that you're bringing together and weaving this. Well, I want to hear more. I love that you said weaving. I love, I love the the image. I like to sometimes when I look at my own work, I like to look at it, uh, I talk about it as a prism where you're kind of looking through the prism at all of these different ways that the human being manifests in this universe, you know, and, and so uh, my life has just been one big giant study of different aspects of the, you know, of the human, how we move, how we communicate, how we connect with, uh, you know, the divine, how we how we work in order to maintain our own integrity in our structure. So, so you know, it, it is it is collecting strands. It really has been. You know, did you know that in ancient India, there was a book on body language? No. Uh, it was first. It was it was first written written in about two A.D. But that was after centuries of oral tradition. It's a book, it's a book called the Natya Shastra, and it, it, it catalogs nine basic emotions. All of these different technologies, or whatever you want to call them, have different, some of them say six, some of them say seven. So the ancient Indian texts said nine. And they, they, had, they, they showed what the face was supposed to look like, how you were supposed to breathe, what the sound of the voice was, the posture you were to take to, uh, you know, it was originally designed for actors, but people, you know, in all of the Indian traditions understood that these were the nine basic emotions and this is how they are manifested in 2 AD. So this is really old stuff. Darwin did something very similar. Darwin wrote a wonderful book, a wonderful book called The um, the expression of emotions in humans and animals. It yes. was a fantastic book. Yeah, and, and it, it, it had a great influence on me at one point. There are some things in his book that have been shown to be not exactly accurate, but his power of observation was awesome, absolutely awesome. And uh, there was also a teacher in the 19th century whose name was Francois Delsart, who created an entire science in the study of body language. And a lot, of, a, a lot of people, like we think about our history of modern dance, the history of modern dance was influenced 
by the ideas of this man, Francois del Sartre, who said he learned his from studying the Greeks. So, again... And then, wow. and then we bring in, and then we bring in the contemporary people. You know, the the Paul Ekmans and the Lisa Feldman Barretts and the Susanna Blocks, the people, the people who have gone and you know put people in laboratories and videotaped them and studied them and you know hooked them up to electrodes and you know what they're coming up with the same information, which to me I find <laughs> so fascinating. <laughs> but now, but now we can say it's evidence based. And exactly. Like, that makes it valid, you know. <laughs> right. And so, and so those people before really didn't have any evidence, right? No, they had Absolutely, the evidence. You their know, senses. They were just they were just making it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've written uh, at least one book. Do you want to tell us about it? I've written a ton of books. In fact, I have a new book that is literally going to be available November 29th. It just came out in pre-sale on Amazon, so I'm super excited about that. Um, so the, well, uh, the first book, okay, I can tell you about that one. It's actually called You've Got the Power, and it's, um, the subtitle is Four Paths to Awaken Your Body's Archetypal Energies. One of the things that I teach is this deep exploration into what I call four cornerstone, four, <laughs> say that again, four cornerstone archetypes. And I, I know you'll resonate with these, the healer, the warrior, the teacher, and the visionary. And, uh, you know, I was deeply influenced by Joseph Campbell and Angelis Arian and some of the other great teachers uh, working with mythology, and I have taken my practice as a Feldenkrais practitioner and as an emotional body teacher and integrated the somatic components of these four archetypes. And I've been teaching it for several years, and people have been saying, you know, you really should put this into a book, so I have. And so that's coming out. To me, that's an aspect of body language in that each archetype has a physical center of presence and a certain way of manifesting and ways, uh, ways that we can begin to access the power of these archetypes through embodying their facial expressions and breath and attitudes. So that's one of the books that I'm very excited about. But I also have another book about body language, which is called Walking Your Talk, which is literally about body language. And then I have a couple of other books. Uh, what Are You Afraid Of is a book that I wrote specifically about the emotion of fear and the embodiment of fear and how we can overcome that. So I just, I just keep on writing, just like you. I just keep on writing and working because that's what I love to do. I had, I had asked an apprentice to do something, and she said to me, I can't do that because it would be inauthentic. Okay, well. I, and, you know, it, basically <laughs> what I've been taught is nothing is inauthentic. And as you're well, talking I, about, you know, these different postures and the different ways of being and the different facial expressions and the different centers, I'm thinking you can't do that until you dismantle your ego. So long no. as ego is driving it, then ego says, no, I'm just this one thing. Well, ego interrupts any possibility for learning. As, as far as, because I guess, you know, to me, ego is a tricky word because so many people use it in so many different ways. 
but I'm guessing that you're talking about it from the idea of kind of uh, protecting a self-image. In the in the classic Freudian sense, yes. Right, and and so <laughs> I think I think that we all have ego, and maybe we all need ego, but ego can get in the way. There's no question. And when dismantling it doesn't mean you don't have it. Right, exactly, and I think that it um, means you have choices. Right, uh, but but authenticity. It means, authenticity means that you have to know who you are. In order to be authentic, I need to know who I am first, right? Because if I don't know who I am, then I'm never authentic because who am I? But all but always thinking we are. This is a frustration I feel in my voice lesson where I'm told, no, you're not being authentic. I'm like, I'm being as authentic as I know how to be. Well, you're not being authentic. I want your authentic voice. I actually went and I was asked, what do you want to do with these lessons? I said, well, I'd like to sing on key. And I was told, I'm sorry, that's impossible. No one can sing on key. Hmm. We can find your authentic voice, but that's all we can do. Well, I don't know what that means, no one can sing on key. That Um, singing on key is a goal-oriented behavior. mm Mm-hmm. Which... is thwart the energy of singing. Well, I guess it depends on what you what your aim is. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you wanna if you wanna do Aida, then you know you've got a goal that is goal oriented, and you know then you have to you know you have this to is, sit with those constraints. This is a, this is a person who has taught people who sing at those places. Right, and she said that you can't sing on key. Then how did how did that absolutely people... absolutely not? If you will actually listen to any of those singers, you will see that they are never on the note. They approach the note, they leave the note, but they're never on the note. You and I think it's note, 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 but a real singer is always on the move. Well, you could say that about everything in life, couldn't you? Couldn't you? Because movement is life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we weren't moving, it's one of the, it's one of the, the it's one of the body languages that we get if someone stiff. Right. Well, when you talk about, you know, it's interesting that you're bringing up voice because, of course, one aspect of body language is is the voice, right? The pitch. The, the 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 tempo the the level all of that communicates as well you know it's it's interesting when I'm not seen how do I communicate with my voice and how do I find authenticity in my voice when I'm speaking to someone you know I can sometimes feel even as I'm speaking to you uh, you ask me a, a difficult question. And I can feel the tension in my throat. And it's like, how do I bring myself back to me? How do I find the answer for me? You know, so that I'm not uh, suddenly feeling like, oh, I have to perform for Susan. You know, it's kind of interesting looking at that from the perspective of, quote, unquote, body language as well. Yes, because because it is an inner signal to ourselves. I 
know that what you teach people helps them to be more in favor of their body. And I see our culture as a culture which um, really teaches people to distrust their body and to uh, make war on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's true. And, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons, though, don't you think some of that comes simply from um, education as we're growing up? I mean, when we, it, it, you know, I think that a lot of it starts when we're children. And that if we, because after all, really so many of our habitual tensions and postures and attitudes are developed before we're four or five years old. And then they just get solidified as we grow older and we we create our own sort of self-fulfilling prophecy about how we relate to the world. And so if there was, something that could happen as, as we're forming this uh, wonderful vessel that carries us around, we would be better off. That being said, of course, we can't change much of what's happening in society. So what do we do when we become adults and we realize I'm not carrying myself in an authentic way? I don't have the the posture or the attitude of someone that I care for. How do we begin that transition? How do we re-educate ourselves? Which is what I, I believe the Feldenkrais method. And then, of course, I've created something that I call the Kinesa process, which integrates these ideas of body language and Feldenkrais and spirituality all into one thing so that I could begin to have a relationship with this thing I call body. You know, I don't often say my body because it sounds as if I'm separate from my body and I think of me, that this vessel is me. Mm -hmm. I I live in this vessel, but it's not separate from me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sometimes people write it body-mind. It's true, but then if you say body-mind, and there's, there's actually some, uh, an approach that's called body-mind, and I think to myself, but yeah, but you forgot the emotions. Exactly, right? I mean, it, it's got to have all three, body-mind emotions. Right. And incidentally, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross restricted us to five emotions. Five. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. Well, she I, was, I, and I, she basically just did not allow us any other. If we said, oh, well, I feel jealous, she would say, nope. Not an emotion. Try another one. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Was, well, I mean, it was you know, really a fascinating training to be forced to come back to, you know, is it joy? Is it grief? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. To, to, I mean, the really bare rocks of emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, well, to start to see, oh wow, you know that, you know that's anger. That's you know, and to kind of get the the. And it helped me then to to not so much interpret body language as to understand what I was being told by a person's body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's tricky, I think, 
Um, I, I believe that one can boil a lot of things down to basic emotions, whether it's five emotions or six emotions. Six or nine or whatever, right? But. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, I like to think, and this is one of the things I appreciate about both ALBA and the emotional body, is this idea that there are six basic emotions, but then other emotions are what we would call mixes where, you know, you have almost, you could call it like a recipe. I have a little bit of, you know, the anger pattern and a little bit of the, you know, happiness pattern and I have a little bit of this and that gives me courage, right? Courage is not just anger. Courage also has a little bit of joy to it because I know that I can do the job, right? Or jealousy you know, jealousy would be maybe a combination of anger and some sadness because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sad that I'm not as good as you, but I resent you. You know, so, so to me, I love this idea of a recipe for a mixed emotion. That is, that, that, you know, so, so that it's not just, um, oh, I'm narrowing it down to that because there's, right. there's often a mix. And then there's also sometimes tangled emotions. Entangled emotions, and and it's, this happens a lot with women, right? You know, where a woman is going, I'm so bad at you, I'm so bad at you, and they're crying, right? So why are they crying if the pure emotion of anger is one of action, one of power, one of of being ready to move forward, and yet because we've been disempowered in so many situations, that anger has been covered over by what looks like sadness and, and how to disentangle that. That is, to me, that is a powerful work, you know, and, and there's a lot of entanglements like that that can happen. Absolutely. I n- noticed that you could probably share with us what you have to offer people who are feeling anxious. Mm. There are a lot of different strategies that people can do, um, uh, you know, just in the moment. Obviously, working with the breath is one way to do it, you know, and it's it's interesting. uh, Breathing, you know, every emotion, every emotion has a breathing pattern. And by the way, that's also in the Natya Shastra, which I thought was so interesting. And a lot of uh, Hindu teachers even speak about this idea that every emotion has a breath pattern. But there is a breath. There is a breath pattern that is not associated with any emotion at all. And when There's you a breath engage, pattern that is not associated with any emotion. Exactly. And so Whoa. when you when you intentionally do this breath pattern, you can calm yourself down because you will go into what's neutral. And what's really interesting is, you know, in my research, I have seen that this breath pattern is taught, for example, in certain forms of meditation and in certain even exercise programs. Uh, We call it the zero breath. And the zero breath is, uh, do you want to try it? You want me to take you through it? I do. I do. Yes. Okay. So, So pay attention for a moment to how you're breathing right now. Just your regular breath and noticing, you know, what your, what your, the length of your inhale is, the length of your exhale, 
and and what you're using to breathe. Are you breathing through your nose? Are you breathing through your mouth? You don't have to tell me. You can just be kind of exploring that. Uh, you know, most of us think, oh, well, we breathe through the nose, but so many people actually do breathe through the mouth because of different um, obstructions in their pathways, different things that have happened to them in their lives. So as you're breathing right now, if you could begin to think of that breath as, you know, what we call a diaphragmatic breathing, so you're not breathing up in your upper chest, but you're letting the breath kind of move down a little bit. You don't have to expand your belly into anything big or anything like that. Um, I don't know why people tell you to expand your belly. Your belly doesn't have any lungs in it, but that's that's a, another, you know, kind of thing that people do. <laughs> So, okay, no laughing. You're trying to get neutral here. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, okay. So as you're breathing right now, um, notice the length of the inhale and the length of the exhale. And just take note of which one is shorter for right now because you're going to need to do that. And then I want you to just change the, the pathway so that you're inhaling through your nose, but you're exhaling through your mouth. And as you're doing that movement, inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth, can you make them both exactly the same length? So that's why I asked for the shorter one. You don't want to extend it out, but if you're, you know, if you're, if you were a four and a five now, just make them both a four. It's your own count. I'm just making a number up. Inhaling through the nose and exhaling through the mouth. And then if there were any pauses, could you just get rid of the pauses and just allow it to be an easy return. So you inhale through your nose and you exhale through your mouth and you just keep it going in a circular motion, inhaling and exhaling. And ideally, you have your eyes open and you're just looking straight ahead. And the reason you're doing that is because if you look down or close your eyes, you could go into sadness. So you're, you're doing the circular breath and... It sounds like you're making dinner at the same time. So <laughs> no, not at all. Going on in the background. Not, not making dinner, I'm breathing. I'm okay, thinking good. about I'm... when I was in the hospital and I was mm-hmm. in so much pain that I would pant. <laughs> exactly. And the nurses exactly. would come in and they would say, in through your nose, two, three, out through your mouth, two, three. They would do exactly, exactly. this breath. Exactly. So, so this is what we call the zero breath. And when you do that, it takes away any emotional overlay, and that helps people calm down. So that's one strategy. Another strategy is very difficult for me to try to do, not visually, but it's based on a Feldenkrais process where it, it has to do with pulsing your hand. So if you were to just bring the tips of your fingers together to touch your thumb and then open them out very delicately, pulsing open and close, as if it was like a, a, I like to think of like a sea anemone or something like that, just opening and closing very delicately and finding a pulse that's not too fast and not too slow and without tension, this pulsing of the hand signals to the nervous system that everything's okay because you cannot pulse this 
if you're stressed out, you start pulsing too fast or your hands just stops and gets tense. And you keep this pulsing going while you keep this zero breath going, and that really helps calm anxiety. In fact, I often do the pulsing right before I'm about to do a talk because it brings my whole system into alignment. So if I were to, you know, leave two things for your listeners, that would be the two, the zero breath and what Moshe Feldenkrais calls the bell hand, which is the feeling of this easy pulsing of the hand. And actually, if, if people um, want to, that, that's, that's something I offer on my website. They can, they can find it there. Tell them how to get to your website. It's very easy. It's just my name, LavinaPlanka.com. L-A-V-I-N-I-A-P-L-O-N-K-A, LavinaPlanka.com. That's it. That's it. Oh, my goodness. Well, I could certainly talk to you for the whole evening, but they're not going to let us do that. It's a blog talk show, and they're going <laughs> to slam the door on us. So I'm going to ask well, you. Well, before, before, before you, you kick me off, Susan, I just want to say that I, you saved my life when I turned 50, and I was looking for information of a way to go through menopause without having to deal with the, the stuff that, other women were doing and I found your book and I just want to thank you. It's taken me all these years, 20 years later, I'm thanking you. <laughs> so I wanted you to know. You that. are so welcome. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go back to that image of the weaving because I believe that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients and that it requires all of these different threads, the threads of movement, the threads of story, the threads of every color and every size and every possible imagining. So I want to thank you for the beauty and the vibrancy that you are bringing to this reweaving. Well, thank you. It really has been a pleasure and an honor, and um, I wish you the best. You too. And Sarah Ellen, thanks for helping me restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. And thanks to all of you listeners for doing the same. Green blessings and good night, everybody. Good night.